Stock market got clobbered today, only the second day into the fourth quarter. Yet Wall Street is saying forget about it. Bears are ruling the street right now, and it doesn't seem like the selling is going to be stopping anytime soon. Welcome everyone to Buy, Hold, Sell. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. It's cool, you. It's 62 degrees, for crying out loud. Cool down. You know what you have to do? Start sending me the forecast report before we do these shows so I know what to say. Because it could be snowing for all I know. I'm still always going to say sunny and hot. But regardless, we have somebody who is hot, who is actually going to be telling us everything we need to know. He has been on everything on CNBC. He's actually canceled a CNBC appearance today just to be here with you on Buy, Hold, Sell. Bob Elliott, he is the Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited Funds. Bob, welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Bob, I, I want to start with you here because going through, you're very, um, you have a very uh, big presence on Twitter. You have no, you're definitely not shy on sharing your thoughts about the current market. Uh, that You just give a, a great perspective on everything. What's your take though? Because Everybody we've had on this show, or most people we've had on this show, have been very optimistic about what to expect in the fourth quarter. You seem to be on the other side of the of the trade here. Do you think this selling is going to be continuing, at least in the short term? Well, I think we basically are in a classic late, uh, late cycle dynamic, which is um, often when you see bond yields start to rise, those bond yields rising affect asset prices, which is essentially what we, we've seen, you know, over the course of the last yeah. couple of weeks and, and quite acutely today. And as those asset prices decline, that creates a weakness in demand and a weakness in economic activity and a self-reinforcing on the downside as a function of it. And so given the circumstances that we're seeing, I, I think, you know, there's a lot, there's a significant risk here that we're going to have that sort of uh, reinforcing downward dynamic. And I'd emphasize it's happening at a time when stocks are actually getting more expensive, not less expensive. Today, stocks are more expensive than they were, say, at the beginning of the third quarter, you know, when multiple. stocks started selling off, right? Uh, and what, that's very- What multiple? What multiple? What, EPS multiple? No, just very simply, if you think about it, like stocks or earnings just discounted by discount rates right. and discount rates can be understood. The, the the value of the impact from discount rates can be understood by the performance of the long end bond yield, right? Long end, long term bonds are down much more so than stocks. Stocks are down 9%. Uh, long term bonds are down 15% since yeah. the peak in stocks. What that means is stocks are more expensive today than before they started falling. And that's a very confusing thing for many investors. How can stocks be going down and getting more expensive? It's because they're not falling enough given the bond yield moves that we've seen. Okay. Hey, it's Todd, you know, I, I think it makes a great point. You know, I have a lot of subscribers who are direct to yourself investors. And it's times like these when it's very hard to describe that, yeah, the bond prices is a discounting mechanism, blah, blah, blah. And but the first question they said, well, why didn't it why didn't it matter a month ago or or two months ago? Um, because rates were certainly, you know, had already gone up 450 basis points. How how are we having the well, we did have a little AI mania, and that, you know, gave maybe the last gas. We are trying to price that out. But but Bob, in your mind, what's What's a, I mean, we certainly have the technicals here. 3,800 is sort of the next stop, and then 3,600 on the S&P is 
sort of the next stop after that. What stops? I mean, where 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 do you know? The fix has done nothing, by the way. And so maybe that's the answer. Yeah, well, I, I think what we got to start to see is we got to start to see enough of a decline in stocks to start making that trade-off between stocks and bonds make sense for investors. And and when you're in a situation where um, you know bond yields are are now in the five range, right? And earnings yields are in the five range, and there's a meaningful risk that you're not gonna you're not gonna meet uh, those growth expectations that are priced into PEs, right? Right now, you know, if you look at analyst earnings, they're expecting 12% earnings growth in 24, and then the same in 25. Like that's a lot of earnings growth yeah. that is expected. You know, of course, analysts are always a little too rosy, but fine, forget it. Call it 10. Call it eight. That's a lot of earnings growth in an environment where we're late cycle and bond yields just rose 100 basis points on the long end, right? Like, how are you going to get the economic growth that's going to be consistent with that sort of earnings growth in the future? And so that's really what has to happen is we got to start to normalize those expectations. We got to bring those PEs back to something that's much more reasonable relative to that 5% bond yield. And that's what creates the bottom in stock prices. All right. Well, two questions then. Number one, I, I'm sure you have a macro uh, outlook. So can you give us your macro outlook for uh, North America, if you will? And then secondarily, to normalize, what price earnings ratio, what EPS are you think would be back to normal since it's been abnormal for 12 years? Yeah, well, I, I, I think maybe starting with the the, the second question, huh. you know, what is what is a normal bottoming look like in uh, in PEs, right? You've got to start to, what are those, what do those situations typically look like? They look like 10, 12, 15 PEs. They look like typically when you've gone through a recession, you're looking at earnings compressing something like 15, 20% in a, in a sort of non-crisis earnings drawdown. And so, you know, what are we seeing here? We're, well, right now what's priced in is earnings to go up 25%, not down, right? And we're seeing PEs, you know, that are coming down every day at this pace, but still we're not quite in the range at the aggregate indices, right? At certainly small caps and and mid caps are are in the ballpark, but the mega caps are not, you know, the the S&P 500 is not close to where we are. So, you know, if we get uh, a couple points more down on PEs and we start to get those expectations of, you know, in line with actually some weakness in even zero, right? Even zero earnings growth over the next couple of years, moving those expectations down. That's when we start to talk about something that's a little more plausible. And so, you know, moving equity, the equity markets in this recession scenario, moving into the, you know, deep into the 3000 range in the S&P 500 is totally... Totally yeah. plausible. In fact, it should be expected. Wow. Well, I'm th- I think you know, Todd, he's the first guy who's actually had the stones to uh, say that, that <laughs> we have to have some return to normal. What I'm finding interesting, yeah. Bob, is a couple of things. One is, I, I just did the math yesterday on the cash reserves of, let's say, the top 10 tech stocks, and then I put a 6% corporate yield on it. And they're generating about $3.5 billion a month in free cash flow just from the yield that they never used to get. And to me, that is offsetting, you know, the other negative for the global companies is the strength of the dollar. It seems to be sort of at, at, at you know, repatriation of profits, but this extra three and a half billion dollar a month in cash flow. Um, now the second thing is, you know, they are the most trustable beings out there, meaning that so much of their revenue is on subscription. It's recurring. It's, it's very high margin. There's, you know, the 
the incremental cost of new customers basically zero. And and they're the lifesavers right now. I mean, everything that was going on today, you know, some of our favorite companies in tech space were down three dollars, and it's a four hundred dollars stock. That sort of thing. that to me says that that you know it's the life life raft uh, deal. That, that that when I used to run mutual funds, when you w- w- couldn't run any place else, what was the things you could most depend on that had the strongest EPS? And that had, you know, 80 or 90 percent of their revenues built in in subscription. That to me is what the life preserver is right now. You you buy it, you think I'm wrong because at 3000, I'm dead wrong. Well, I just think the question is, where are you going to get that 25 percent earnings growth? Right. Like that's, you know, it's true. Like, do I think, I don't know, you look at, at, at Apple and sure, it's got, you know, it's got good preservation of existing revenue stack for the reasons that you're talking about. But that's not what we're talking about on you know the S&P 500 that's not what the expectations are the expectations are for a significant growth in profits both a growth in revenue that is you know in the 5 6 7% range and an expansion of margins at a time when you know labor markets are tight and we're late cycle and margins are already at you know yeah, secular highs and yeah. so the the question is not like are these reasonable cash flow you know, companies are these reasonable companies that, you know, yes, they're definitely reasonable companies. The question is, at what price are you paying for reasonable companies? The answer is you're paying way too much in terms of your expectations for these companies that are fine and good, but are they going to meet the expectations that exist in them? And that's the real question. And that disappointment of expectations like I think we we've sort of all are used to this like crisis dynamic. Like that's not how most equity cycles Work. move into decline. Yeah. The way they move into decline is like everyone thinks that things are going to be great, right? Everyone looks at that you know Atlanta Fed GDP now thing and says six percent right. real growth it's happening. And the answer is like, well, if everyone believes that's happening and then growth is two or one, then everyone's disappointed and you get the equity markets moving down. And that's basically the circumstance that I think that we're going to see. It's just you know, probably in the third quarter earnings reports, we're going to get disappointed. You know, everyone's going to get kind of disappointed relative to those expectations that were happening. You talk about the yeah. optimism of the Wall Street consensus for earnings growth for 2024 and 2025. What's your forecast? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I don't pick earnings estimates in the specific, but what I'd say is um, conditions are aligning for economic weakness and a recession dynamic to emerge in 2024, just essentially as everyone's given up on it. Uh, And certainly relative to expectations, we're going to have a disappointing growth environment. And I thought that, and I was pretty compelled by it, that before we had a 100 basis point run up on the long end, right? And so what are we looking at? You know, what happens in typical recession environments? Well, certainly zero earnings growth would be a great outcome in a recession environment. And really what people should be looking at is uh, the possibility of uh, of meaningful negative earnings growth, right? And so- Your macro is recession. Recession, of course. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the probability of recession today- is getting higher and higher just at a time when basically, if we go back six or eight weeks ago, everyone gave up on recession. And to be clear, I'm not, I haven't just been a bear through this whole time. Like if you go back a year or further, I said that there was no chance that we were going to have a recession in, in 
in the first part of 2023 because the cycle is much more slow moving than people expect and the and the economy is going to be a lot less sensitive to interest rates than people expect and what happened there was everyone thought there was a recession and then it didn't come which created right everyone was wrong about that and then what's happened you know more recently is everyone expects that things will be great just as the storm clouds are gathering for recession to play out in early 2024 and so you know the expectations are just totally wrong relative to understanding the fundamental macro dynamics that are happening in the economy. Yeah. Well, I, w- I would agree with you on this. And, we, you know, we've all talked about it. We all sort of put our finger in the air and saying, OMG, is there anything of historical relevance now? Because everything is is different. We, we, we're we still pulling off pandemic money. We're still, you know, we had all these various one-off situations that changed the playbook, if you will. If your playbook is that a recession is more likely than not going to happen in you know next year, first half, what's the strongest reason you'd say that we're going to have a you know a GDP recession? Well, the the main thing is if you if you look at the um, the combination, basically, what you have is you have a circumstance where you've had a, a massive tightening of interest rates. Right, interest rates of the short end has gone up. The long end didn't comply. Now the long end's complying. That's then creating a hit to to stocks. As stocks fall, the you know consumers will increase their savings rate, reduce their demand. We already saw that playing out in September in the timely credit card data, even before the stock market mm-hmm. dynamic that we've seen, and that will then you know create a hit to first to the most cyclical sectors and then to the broader economy. And the and and to earnings growth, and as earnings growth fades, then you get a weakening of labor market conditions and a softening of income. Like that, you know, in a lot of ways, you say, well, we've never seen something like this. A lot of us haven't seen a a cycle like this in our professional yeah. lifetimes. But this cycle actually is very normal. If anything, it's like very common relative to what the cycles are that we've seen during our our professional lives. Like. You know, this is very much very akin to cycles in the 60s and the early 70s. That's kind of what this looks like is like a traditional late cycle environment. It just those cycles, they just take a while to play out. And the economy is just even less sensitive uh, to the interest rate rises after the period of significant stimulation. It's just, you know, but it's but it's normal. Like we're seeing a normal set of cyclical dynamics play out. It's just that the people wanted it. Uh, you know, people wanted this recession like they want their Amazon packages, like it, you know, order at nine, get it at two. It's just like not how the economy works. I'm going to steal that right. one. I like that. So what you're that saying, is look, at, I I was there in the late 70s, in the early 80s. And, and you know, I was selling bonds that were. I, I was not there in the early the, 70s. The 1870s, Bob. Yeah, it's yeah. the 1870s. Oh, no, no, no. And, um, but I studied but, it but in I books. Would say this. I would say this. <laughs> if you look at the, comp- the composition, I'm just going to go blow past you right there, bro. Um, if you look at the, you know, the, the way the indexes are now composed in the companies there, these are completely different companies than it was in 1980. I mean, we had 25% of the GDP was uh, making products, actually it was 30%. And now, you know, we're 75% services, blah, blah, blah. We have, you know, the, the Magnificent Seven represent 25, 28% of the entire, uh, you know, S&P makeup and valuation. So for the for your situation to come true, in order to say we'll go down to thirty two hundred, then are you really saying that? Yeah, but we got to take down the Microsofts and the Apples and the uh, you know the Metas and all these companies that just mint cash every every 
essentially second of their lives? How far do they have to come down? Because you're, you're not going to get to 3,200 unless we put a haircut on, on the Magnificent Seven. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as a, as a macro investor, yeah. what I'd say is that, you know, the things that you're saying about Microsoft and, and NVIDIA and those places, like, are not different in kind than what GE was 40 years ago, right? Like, it's just, you know, instead of creating the large-scale industrial goods that G was creating, you know, you were creating apps and like they're right. equivalent, you know, they're equivalent to what's going on in the economy today. And so, so I think that the macro linkages, you know, are, are pretty similar in terms of how the economy works today relative to how it worked in the past. And so I think you can draw those parallels. And so the question, I mean, look, here's the basic question is if the Microsofts and et cetera, instead of having revenue growth, at you know what's currently 12%, expected 12 percent they have it at zero then and and i should be clear like yeah. the first move here is just to reflect the interest rate move the 100 basis point interest rate move that we've seen since july 19th like we got to get stocks into the high 3000s right we're not even close to where we are there just to reflect the change in the discount rate. Now, if, and, and at that point, we're still pricing in that 25% earnings growth over the next two years. So let's let's just cut that in half. And now we're into the mid 3000s, right? Or a little bit lower. Like it's not talking about stocks in that level, in those levels. It's not like, you know, we're not tilting at windmills here. This is, this is like, you know, a very plausible series of outcomes that could get us there. In fact, if anything, the re-rating of stocks, like stocks are the only thing that's still up, right? Like financial oh. assets in general are actually about as low as they've been in 40 years. It's just that the stock market is the the main outlier. Liar. Like stocks are up 60% relative to long-term bonds over the course of the last three years. And given that the bonds are in the stocks, like, uh, you know, that divergence won't exist forever. Okay. A quick question before we go to a break, Bob. This recession that you are forecasting for next year, do you see it being a quite deep recession or a mild recession? I mean, I think odds are that this recession will be meaningfully more challenging than the vast majority of folks expect. I mean, to be clear, most folks expect no recession, right? right? A a perfect soft landing. The markets are pricing in, by and large, a perfect soft landing. Uh, And odds are that it will be much harder than even those people who are predicting recession will believe. And the reason why that is, is because just as it was very hard to slow the economy because it wasn't very sensitive to interest rate hikes, so too is it hard to stimulate the economy at a time when it's not sensitive to interest rate cuts. And so Mm -hmm. in that situation, a Fed that is challenged to stimulate and frankly, a, gov- a, a federal government that has already spent its fiscal firepower on right. the economy today puts us in a very difficult circumstance to try and stimulate as the economy starts to slow. Yeah, I, okay. I, I get you, Tom, where I know we're going to break. When we come back, though, I, I, one of the questions I've tried to ask all of our guests is, where does quantitative tightening fit in here? Because $95 billion, you know, is being sold into the into the bond market every, you know, every month by the Fed. And we don't, we'll never hear about QT. So, Todd? Yeah, I love that teaser. So that's what we're going to do. So coming up after the break, we're going to talk about QT, talk all about bonds. We have with us Bob Elliott. He is the CIO of Unlimited Funds. And he will be with us right after the break. Please stay with us.
Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. This is Jessica from Jay Walker Salon Group, and you're watching Tobin and Todd from Buy, Hold, Sell. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Well, on the second trading day of the fourth quarter, we see the markets take a tumble. Actually, a bit. We got a big crash, actually, a panic crash, and we saw yields, bond yields, just spike higher. We had a 10-year bond yield, treasury yield, at 4.8%, and not a lot of people had predicted that. Katie Stockton was on Buy, Hold, Sell. She gave us an exclusive, and she actually said 5.25% is where we will um, eventually hit, so... Time will tell, but right now she's right on target. But with us today is Bob Elliott. He is the CIO, Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited Funds, who was also a former investment committee member of Ray Dalio's Bridgewater. Bob, I got to ask you, what, real quick though, what was that like working with Ray Dalio? I'm, I'm such a big fan. Oh uh, yeah, well, I, I, it was a great place to start my career. Very proud of uh, of all the investment strategies I was able to create while I was there, and uh, you know, happy to to be out on my own these days uh, with that uh, that foundation, that understanding. Yeah, that's now awesome. You, I mean, it's like the world's biggest hedge fund. So the fund that you run now allows the 
non-accredited investor to invest like a hedge fund. Can you just give us a quick rundown of what your strategy yeah, yeah. is here? I mean, I mean, the basic idea was, you know, why should hedge fund style returns basically be available only for accredited investors and, and institutions? Like, why not? Um, why not the everyday investor? Why shouldn't they have access to these to these funds? And so, uh, my co-founder Bruce and I got together. He, between the two of us, decades of experience ha- having built proprietary strategies, mm-hmm. and basically worked on a technology that allows us to to replicate the positions that those hedge funds have on at any point in time, and and use those and trade those in long and short positions and liquid securities that we can use to back an ETF and. You know, the ETF structure for a lot of investors is the optimal investment yeah. structure. Plus, it means it's available to everyone, you know, and yeah. you have all the benefits of liquidity and, and low costs and transparency. Yeah, well, so I'm always, I'm always curious, and uh, I, I just love asking this question. I'm, you know, ran a hedge fund and I, I get all the data on a hedge fund performance. Hedge fund performance has sucked for the last 12 years with a few outliers like Ray Dalio and a couple other ones. Stevie Cohen did okay till he wanted to buy the Mets. Um, but typically, hedge funds have trailed the market, um, you know, in five and 10 year segments. Well, so what's your secret sauce that you don't trail the, the, the market? Well, when when you look at that, you're looking at that net of fees. And the yeah. real problem is those hedge funds are charged in two and 20. Right. And the, the nice thing about what we're doing is we're using technology to uh, replicate what they're doing and what their positioning is. And because we don't have to pay any star PMs, right? We're just using technology to do it. We can offer it a much lower fee structure. That's the and best so you... answer I've ever heard. Todd, give this guy a medal. Yeah, <laughs> I would always ask people who come to me for money management and they were coming out of a hedge fund. And I said, do you understand, do you really understand what two and 20 means? I, I used to say, you know, that the, the 20% is needed because the, the most of the PMs are on wife number two, and they got you know the, the wife got the first house in the Hamptons, so now he's got to have another Hamptons, and he's got four <laughs> kids in private school, so he needs that twenty percent. Uh, you know, Park Avenue schools aren't getting any cheaper, um, and 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 yet I, I've always wondered why someone couldn't replicate, and now I found yeah. it. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that that's what I like to say. You know, hedge funds have don't have a strategy problem. The strategies no. are great. They have a fee problem. And the yeah. fee problem is, you know, you know, makes the managers rich and and the uh and the investors not that much better off than what they could do on their own. But if you can replicate the strategies, uh-huh. right? The winning and just strategy. the winning strategies, because they're very good. Like there's a reason why. Uh, you know, the guy's got two houses in the Hamptons. It's not it's yeah. not because the strategies suck. The strategies are good. It's just that they're taking all the alpha for themselves. And so that's our basic idea is do a pretty darn good job replicating the strategies and then do it at a much lower fee structure. And then, of course, ETFs have the benefit of typically being much yeah. more tax efficient yeah. for a taxable investor. And so when you think about, you know, the investor doesn't care about the gross of fees returns of their strategies, they care about net of fees, net of taxes. And the idea is a hedge fund replication type strategy has the advantage of fee alpha and tax alpha relative to individual manager performance that's out and, there. And alpha for people at home are not totally into it. It's just outperformance. Outperformance, um, exactly. Yeah, I, that's I right. could never understand why, you know, even, even, uh, even when I did have a hedge fund, I say, listen, guys, uh, we're going to outperform, but unless I deliver to you at least one and a half X of what the S&P 500 is, I, I'm not taking the 20% because I just couldn't look somebody in the eye and do that. But of course, I didn't have two houses in the Hamptons and, you know, 
and I've been married for 37 years, so I, I don't have the divorce payments. I don't have the I don't have the kids in Park Avenue. Um, yeah. So that's a great that's a great idea. I want to talk to you about doing a income fund in that same way because um, my uh, I, I have an income strategy that has done been stupid ridiculous. It would be great to be in an ETF to be you know highly tax efficient. So we'll yeah, talk yeah. later, e darling. We'll talk later. Conversation ETF for another time. And exactly, camera, exactly. Yeah, well, I'm sure with the pedigree that you have with Bridgewater, I'm sure this would do quite well. And the symbol for that for the audience is HFND. Terrific symbol, by the way. I don't know how you yeah. got it, but that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great for marketing. So so let's turn our, our attention to QT. I'm at the end of the, the, the uh, last block. Toby brought up quantitative tightening, and um, he had some detailed questions about that with bonds. I'm going to ask you this question before we get to Toby's question: Is how high do you see that 10-year Treasury yield going? Well, I think we're 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 basically in the ballpark here of of what fair value is on the 10-year Treasury. You know, we've gotten to a point where the rise in interest rates is significant enough to start to create that hit, that drag on the economy uh, and that drag on stock prices, right? And we, you could see that in the intermarket action, which is that you're starting to see stocks fall, you know, starting to see stocks fall meaningfully relative to bonds. And at a 5% yield, you know, over a long term, you're starting to see uh, term premiums in the bond market get up to the highest level that they've been, you know, post financial crisis and sort of at an average-ish level, you know, prior to the financial crisis and given the liquidity in the system and things like that uh, and the high levels of debt, you wouldn't necessarily expect to have a circumstance where you'd get to term premiums that are as extreme as they were, say, in the 90s. And so, you know, on a value basis, you know, what I like, I'd like to say, like, look, the, the, the easy money has been made being short bonds. Like, uh, like maybe they'll go a little bit higher, but like the story is, that they needed to move to levels that are basically in this range to start to kick off the the slowing of the economy and the turning of the cycle and that's where we're at so so we talked we we spoke briefly about this before we went on the air about Jamie Diamond's comments regarding a 7% uh 10 year treasury yield and he had said it uh, like you had brought up for the the banks to uh, just to be prepared in the event that we do hit that. Do you think we even come close to a seven percent, or is that just it's Jamie Diamond for crying out loud? He's no macroeconomist. Hello. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I think he's a banker though, and he's a banker. And I, I think what he was saying, which is which is prudent, is that you should, if you're sitting in the in the bank risk manager position, you should be stress testing your book at a seven percent yield. Because, you know, that is a totally plausible, it's a plausible outcome. I'm not saying that it's the likely outcome or where uh -huh. I think we're going, but from a risk, you know, risk managers are paid to think about a wide range of plausible outcomes and making sure the bank doesn't blow up along the way. And so, you know, you got to be thinking about what 7% could mean. And so that's really, I think, what, the way I take his, uh, his, his advice. I think the odds that we get into that range are not that high. Um, and and the reason why that is is that would imply like a pretty extreme term premium on the long end, yeah. you know, hundreds of basis points of premium, which um, you know would be uh, would would almost certainly start to create dip buyers into this market into the bond market, right? Yield buyers into the bond market. The other thing I'd emphasize is if you get that, I mean, that's a two hundred and fifty basis point move up in the bond yield. Think about what the impact, the direct impact that will be on stocks, oh, right? You're oh. talking about a 25, 30%, even maybe yep. more 
drag on on stocks. And the point is that that then that create that sows the seeds of the reasons why it would not happen, which is you start to get the stock sell off that we're seeing, which starts to get people to look at the bond market as an attractive asset relative to the stocks, which creates the bid out of you know the move out of stocks and into bonds and essentially puts the lid on the stock price at this uh term premium and so that's what you have to think about is that they intersect each other like asset prices in general might be too high but it's really stock prices are way too high and bonds are kind of in the ballpark at this point yeah i, I i'll tell you that you know the pensions that i i work with when you when you do sort of do the math and make the uh, extrapolate a little bit here that let's say five five and a quarter is the high end that if you take the the, the dividend the interest payment um, and then you know your scenario plays out that we do have a reasonable mild recession you're not talking about a head banging recession um, then the lower the higher for longer narrative at some point then has to shift I can't tell you when that's going to be but on that five and a half this goes back to you know me selling bonds for 13%. I kept t- telling the pension plans, dude, I know you're a fireman, okay? And you're on the the, 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 the investment committee, God knows why. But let me just do as, as easy as I can say. If you take that 13% yield for the next 30 years and then interest rates come down, you're going to make 10 times your money and you're going to be the hero of the pension plan. Well, we're sort of getting, if we get to that five and a half percent, five five and a quarter, et cetera, then uh, to your point, man, I want to, I want to, it's a great return because when, rates start to come down, those things are going to go up 20 or 25%. And I don't think anybody really realizes how badly the pension funds got smoked in 2022 on, on their bond portfolios and how they're getting smoked this year on those. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank had 20 people in their risk management department. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, th- I think that that's, I think it's it's true that at some point you start to see that, that real, that value in long-term bonds. And of course, that intersects with the macro economy. Like when you know, when bond yields were trading at 13 uh, on the long end, we had gone through 15 years of way above 2% inflation, right? And uh, and we were needing, you know, 20 plus rates uh, on the short end in order to, to break that. And the dynamic that we're seeing right now is not anywhere near as extreme True. in the sense, yeah, we had, a, we had an inflationary impulse and inflation was elevated. But from a macroeconomic standpoint, we're in an environment where growth is softening and inflation has moderated significantly. Will it necessarily go literally back to 2%? Maybe not, you know, maybe not without a little bit more economic weakness, but we're not anywhere near the sort of dynamics that existed when we had bond yields that were meaningfully higher than what we have today. So this idea that we're going to get to 13% that's being bandied about or something like it's just that that's fan. Like that is fantasy. Well, right. That, that because would be of what it would mean. Swan, black Swan event. It would be a double black Swan event. That would be, you know, an asteroid crashes in a New York city scenario. Yeah. And I think, I think what I'd say on, on, on that is that it's a good, this is a good time to see how people think about, about trades and about asset prices, because there's some people who are out there basically saying, Oh my God! I think it. You know, we're going to have uh, a balance of payments crisis in the U.S. and a bond crisis in the U.S. and yields are going to go through the roof and things like that. And I think the people who are experienced macro traders who are deeply involved in these markets and carefully thinking about risk return opportunities today find bonds a lot more attractive than they yeah. did when bond yields were a hundred or more basis points lower. And that's the sign of a good trader. 
right? The sign of a good trader is a person who doesn't get excited about the tail end run, but actually mm -hmm. starts to rebalance back when that run happens, right? You want to be fading extreme moves, not levering into extreme yeah. moves. And so while, you know, right. people talking up extreme moves might get more followers on Twitter and stuff like that. <laughs> like that, that doesn't make for that. That's not good asset management. And, yeah. you know, you could separate the wheat from the chafe right here on who's a good asset manager really in the market today versus who's not based on how they're responding. Yeah. I, I'm totally, I totally with you. And I, and I, you know, I've harped on this for a while. There, there are a lot of, of 35, 40 somethings who've never managed money in a, a recession in a bond market, you know, yields going up. And Tina really was, there was no alternative. You were getting negative returns in bonds. I, you know, completely understand. But when the, when the, when the circumstances change, then you've got to, you know, update your playbook for sure. By the way, uh, as we are speaking, Kevin McCarthy just got thrown out on his arse as the Speaker of the House, who's going to gum up anything that has to do with getting a, a, a short-term spending bill, et cetera, et cetera. So that's some new noise in, in the system. Um, yeah. Are you pretty pr prosaic about that, you know, looking out two or three months? Well, I, I think that, you know, the possibility of a government shutdown, you know, obviously is a negative impact on growth. And I think it's one of these things that is a little more subtle, like, you know, a macroeconomist might say, well, you have a shutdown and then people get paid back and it's V-shaped and it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I think it's a little more subtle than that, uh, particularly from the perspective of, you know, a lot of people got prepared for a government shutdown uh, that didn't actually happen. And mm -hmm. now they're looking out and they're saying 45 days from now, the speaker's out of the, out of the house. And like, can these people make a decision, a reasonable decision? I'm not sure they can. And so that will likely create a level of conservatism for government employees, as well as the various um, uh, third parties that serve the government uh, and sell into the government o over this period, and also start to you know start to erode confidence. The the situation, if this was the only thing that was going on and the economy was booming and yeah. you know, we were early cycle and the Fed was easing and stuff like that, like no one would really care. Sure. It's more like we're kind of on the edge of a cliff and we have all these little things, you know, student loans push you and the government shutdown possibility pushes you. I mean, just all these sort of and now interest rates rising and now stocks going down and they're all gentle pushes. But when you're at the edge of the edge of the cliff, the edge of the canyon, you know, you don't need that many little pushes to get you to start to move over the, over the, over the gap. And, and that's kind of what I'd sort of put this into. Well, I, what you're, about you're the, the cumulative effect. I, I, I understand my, my, but my other point would be sort of 20% of the households uh, are responsible for 75% of, of discretionary spending. 20% uh, of the households own 78 to 81% of all the wealth, et cetera. So if, if there is this negative wealth effect that you're thinking, particularly if we went down to 3,200, I know I start getting calls from people I haven't talked to in 20 years when that sort of happened. Then there is a feedback loop to your point. I mean, right. there is the cumulative of it. It's not just one, but there is a negative a feedback loop. And people say, get me the F out of these stocks and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting times we're living in right now, but it didn't really help to kick the Speaker of the House uh, out on his on his arse. Yeah, definitely not. And and one last question for you, Bob. The UAW strike. Uh, it's continuing to to move forward. There's now talk about um, potential. The the UAW is going to up the ante, if you will, on the uh, on the strikes yeah. uh, at different plants around the country. What's your take? Is it going to have a, a long lasting impact on GDP? Is this part of the is this going to be that uh, the catalyst that pushes us into the recession? I mean, what what do you what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, in and of itself, the the auto uh, production is it's not a huge impact. It's about three basis points of yeah, GDP a week, points. give or take, um, of drag on on third quarter or fourth quarter GDP. Uh, you know, so if that happens all twelve weeks, it'll be you know enough to notice, but not enough to create a huge drag on the economy. I think uh, I, I would just contextualize it in the same shape as some of these other things, which is you know student loans are going to take. 35 or 40 basis points off of growth. And, mm -hmm. you know, this could take 35 or 40 basis points off and a government shutdown could do the same thing. And stocks, you know, bond yields going up could hurt a, a bunch of different parts of the economy uh, and slowing housing. And like, again, all of these things, it's kind of a weird moment if you go back and look at typical economic cycles, there isn't there like back in the sixties and the seventies, it's not like one thing that causes, you know, a total unraveling the way there was, you know, in the 08 uh, credit crisis, it's like a bunch of things pile up and things slow down and then stocks slow down, you start to fall. And then that kind of is a little reinforcing on the downside. And, you know, like it's a little, yeah. And then you look back and you're like, well, it's kind of all of these things that kind of piled up and caused the turn in the cycle. And that's basically what we're talking about here. Well, you didn't wait in any gasoline lines, brother. Let me tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I remember I had to ride my bike down to the Union 76 station and get in line. So then I could go to the phone booth and call my mom to come down and get some gasoline. That had a that had a very non-marginal effect on on our economy. But I, I'm with you that the cumulative effect here is going down. The other point I, I would just make quickly, Todd, is that you know the data that we worked on says that there's about 93 million Americans who are getting some form of a monthly pension check, be it Social Security, be it you know government pensions, school pension, et cetera, et cetera. And that that is one of the reasons why spending has kept up. Do you put that factor in or not? Well, I think actually a lot of uh, talk about the sort of dynamics where we had a where we we're likely to have a bunch of marginal things basically drag the economy down. In a lot of ways, the we had early in this year a bunch of marginal things that that sort of helped pull the economy up. A big uh, part of it was the reset of the you know the CPI benchmarking for things like social security that started to get paid stepwise function paid in yes. January and February. The same thing was true with the tax brackets, which created an effective short-term stimulus um, as were the delayed in tax payments that happened in a bunch of the different States like California, you sort of put that all together. And that's actually, that was kind of an interesting moment where we had a bunch of mini stimulus measures that yes. caught us and supported us. Whereas, you know, here, what we're looking at, is uh, a bunch of sort of mini uh, drags on the economy. And those stimulus measures are unlikely to occur because the inflation measures that we've seen, the inflation, the reported inflation that we've seen over the course of 2023 will not be nearly as high as the reported inflation that existed in 2022. And so we're not going to get anywhere near the sort of benefits that we saw flow through in early 23 to occur again in early 24. Okay. Uh, I'm going to... Todd, I'm going to get that recorded and download that because that was, there was a really a lot of smart stuff he said there. <laughs> oh, he's brilliant. Bob's Bob's definitely brilliant, no doubt about that. Well, oh, I appreciate um, that. <laughs> the, the September jobs report is coming out on Friday. It looks like Wall Street consensus, I believe it's 165,000 unemployment rate uh, dip into to 3.7. What are your numbers? I, I mean, I don't call specific macro reports because, uh, okay, to be that's honest another with reason you, he's smart, Todd. A yeah. <laughs> anyone who thinks that they have an edge in calling the report, like that's not true. Um, there you go. No one has an edge in it. 
Uh, and people are incentivized for outlier positions in order yeah. to get headlines the few times they get lucky. Like, you know, 160,000 jobs seems about right. Uh, unemployment rate in the still in the threes. Uh, but, you know, we're sort of meandering up seems about right triangulates with the other data that we're seeing, which is that there's been some softening of employment, but we're not quite yet in a situation where we're seeing meaningful declines. And basically all the data that I see is aligned with that. And so the jobs report will either be consistent with that or will probably be a fluke outlier if it's not. Okay. Well, I would just, I that's Todd, I would just add this, that, you know, when you have eight or actually 9.1 million jobs available and you have 4.2, 4.3 million people actually available to fill those jobs and about two and a half million of those jobs actually require you to know something, that secular mismatch is not going away unless we right. go down to Venezuela and bring up 700,000 people. And so, that is the stickiest number of the uh, of where the economy th that we have going. You know, the mm -hmm. housing shelter costs are 41 percent of the CPE if you add in mortgage rates and, and rent rates and lease rates. And then my favorite, the assumed what I can rent my house for number, which to me also is complete uh, horse pucky. But we're, yeah. we're, we're not going to get a, a, a much lower number on that. That's not going to keep bring our, our, our inflation rates down either materially. So I'm, okay. I'm just afraid. I'm, Todd, I, I'm just saying is that what no one's talking about is what the Fed really has to do when you have two jobs for every one uh, employable person. And what the Fed had to do if they wanted to get to this miraculous 2%, which I don't believe they should ever do again because the geopolitical world has changed inflation. Yeah. They got to crush the damn economy. They, you know, this pussyfooting around is just like you're at a, a you know, a mm -hmm. shell game and er, 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 somebody is, just keeps going around and around. You, you, we're, the only way we would get to 2% would be a material loss of jobs. And the only way we get a material loss of jobs is in the service business because that's 75% of our economy. Um, okay. So you can smoke the cars, you can you know hit the houses. There's a lot of circular effects. But until you lay off about 2 million service workers, how the hell do we get to 2% inflation? I don't see it. It's a good question. I don't know. And the only time will tell on that one. And we, that's a, definitely a further discussion for another show. But uh, but we're going to close it out there, guys. So, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks well, for having me. So you were sensational. You were, you yeah. were great. I knew our audience is going to get a lot out of it. So Todd, Todd, I'm doing all of our my things from outside now. The, I, the, <laughs> the, the right I, cleaners are gone. I'm, I live on a golf course. What am I doing it in my office for? I don't know. I thought there was a tornado or something. I thought the roof was taken off. I see your, your whole, whole screen change. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. great. Glad you're okay. Though. So I, I like it. I like the look. I know that the viewers will like it as well. So on cool. behalf, <laughs> on behalf of Bob Elliott, of Un CIO of Unlimited Funds, go to unlimitedfunds.com for more information on what Bob H-F-N-D, H-F-N-D. <laughs> there you go. So on behalf of Bob Elliott and Tobin Smith, I am Todd Schoenberger. Thank you once again for joining us on Buy, Hold, Sell. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Buy, Hold, Sell brought to you by Crosscheck Management. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain -brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.